All right, so I'll read the scripture reading for this morning. Um, it's in Matthew thirteen ten through seventeen. Again, Matthew thirteen ten through seventeen. Then the, ah, then the disciples came to and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. The Word of God. Good morning. The passage that Nate read this morning <clears throat> has to do with perception. Now, it may seem odd that I should choose to speak about perception. After all, I'm quite sure Paula will readily tell you I'm not always the most perceptive guy around. A typical conversation in my house might go something like this. Paula, where's the mustard? Right in front of your face, Bob. <laughs> but I don't see it. Look again. Oh, there it is. Where was it? It was right in front of my face. But I should be given some grace in this matter because, after all, they say there are only five senses. I have very poor eyesight, almost no sense of smell. I'm losing my hearing, and I've been told that I'm tasteless and insensitive. Last year's presidential election was a particularly difficult thing to watch, I think you would agree. And I'm not sure the situation has gotten much better. I found myself, as I was paying entirely too much attention to the election and to the commentators, figuratively shaking my fist at the TV screen and saying, what is wrong with you? Are you blind? And then the Lord said to me, yes, they are blind doesn't make a whole lot of sense to shake your fist at a blind man and say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you see? Jesus said in Luke 6.39, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Seems to me that's a pretty good description of what's happening in the country we live in at this time. Now, this passage from Matthew 13 occurs at a very interesting place in the Scripture. It occurs right after Jesus has given the parable of the sower and the seeds to the crowds. Then he withdraws and speaks privately to his disciples. They ask him this question, and only after he's answered the question 
does he give the explanation of what the parable means. Now, the way it was read this morning, it sounds like they just said, Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? I think it sounded more like this. Oh, come on, Jesus, why do you do that? Why do you tell people stories they can't possibly understand and then you don't even tell them what it means? Why do you do that? I suspect it sounded something like that. And Jesus' answer <clears throat> comes from a, uh, a passage uh, in Isaiah. Now, this is quoted in all three of the synoptic Gospels. All three give the parable of the sower of the seeds, the explanation uh, for why he speaks in parables, and then the explanation of the parable itself. And uh, even the Gospel of John also quotes this passage from Isaiah, but in a different context. But Matthew gives us a longer explanation of this passage, and there's a reason for that. You may realize that the Gospel writers all had different audiences in mind, different purposes that they were trying to fulfill. And for Matthew, one of the major things he was trying to show was that Jesus was the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. And so for that reason, he went into a lot more detail in his explanation here because it is one more uh, passage that Jesus came to fulfill. And the passage from Isaiah occurs in a very interesting place in that book. In the sixth chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah has this wonderful vision of God in heaven, this dramatic vision. And the conversation ensues where um, God says to Isaiah, who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, ooh, ooh, me, me, send me, send me. And then, after that, this is the very first message which God gives to Isaiah. The book is 66 chapters long, but this is the first message that Isaiah is given to tell the people. And it's this, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, what's going on here? Well, I'd like to make a number of observations. First, I think Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of this passage. His coming is the fulfillment of this passage. Now, he did that many times. For example, in Luke 4.21 when a different passage from Isaiah was read at a synagogue in Nazareth, he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Well, he's doing something very much like that today. He's saying that his coming is the fulfillment of that passage. Now, secondly, please note, it's inescapable in this passage that Jesus is saying there are two groups of people on this earth and only two. There are those who belong to Jesus, and there are those who do not belong to Jesus. The world wants to divide people into all kinds of other groups. But Jesus is saying that none of those distinctions matter. Race doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Gender doesn't matter. Socioeconomic circumstances don't matter. None of those things matter. The world likes to separate people in these groups and then pit them one against another in creating huge conflict. But Jesus says, no, there is one distinction and only one, those who belong to Jesus and those who do not. In Matthew 10.34, he said, 
Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And in John 9.39, he said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, this distinction makes people in the world angry, because people in the world think that God has some obligation to accept everyone, no matter how much rebellion they may be in against him. And for this reason, they're always angry when they hear this distinction. Now, the greatest sin of Israel, and I think perhaps our greatest sin as well, is to try to be like the people of the world and to go after and worship their gods. That was the main thing that God was trying to tell Israel not to do. Don't mix with the people. Realize you are different. You are the ones who are called out of the world to be my special people. So we have to understand that's going on. Francis Schaeffer once said, if there was one thing and only one thing I could teach my children, it would be this, to live as strangers in a strange land, to realize that you don't belong to this world. Next, think about it. this phrase that's used in this passage, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. What an incredible thing. Think about that. To you it has been given to have the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. What an incredible thing that is. I suggest we should be seeking that knowledge more than all the other knowledge that we tend to chase after, all the other things we tend to listen to. This is what we have been given this opportunity to know. And think of the word secrets. Secrets, he says. What are these secrets of the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think they're precious truths which are hidden in all of creation. They're precious truths which are revealed only in God's word. They reflect the heart of God, the mind of God, the personality and the character of God, that he is revealed in that which he has created and that he is revealed in the word that we have. Now, like most parents, when my children were little, I loved to tell them the secrets that I had learned in my life through my experiences. And now I have the opportunity to do the same thing again with my grandchildren. Well, in the same way, God, our Heavenly Father, longs to tell us the secrets of His heart. He just wants us to listen. In Jeremiah 33.3, we read, God said, Call to me, and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. In 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul says, We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, No eye has seen, No ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And a couple chapters later, Paul says, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ 
and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Next, please notice in this passage that both knowledge and ignorance are progressive. To the one who has knowledge, more will be given, and he will have it in an abundance. But to the one who has only a small amount of knowledge, that will be taken away. In Luke 8.18, Jesus said, Therefore consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. Those who do not belong to Jesus can look and not see. They can hear and not hear. You can shout it. You can flash it in neon lights, but it isn't going to be picked up. But those who do belong to Jesus will hear, and a still small voice is all that is necessary to be heard. Try mentioning the name of Jesus in a crowd of people out on the street. What happens? Some people are drawn to you. Some people can't get away from you fast enough. There is something about the very presence of Jesus, the very name of Jesus, that draws his children to himself and drives away those who do not belong to him. Now, in verse 15, in the English Standard Version, which was read this morning, We see the phrase, the heart has grown dull. In the New American Standard Version, that's rendered, this people's heart has become calloused. Now, you know what a callous is. It's the reaction of the skin to a wound. Thick skin develops, and it protects against further wounds, but it also creates insensitivity. There is a kind of wounding that the truth of God's word brings. And if it's not received, then it produces a callous to protect against hearing it in the future, and it creates a greater and greater insensitivity. By the way, this is a good example of how we should be looking at the things that God has created. How many of us would look at a callous on our hand and say, ah, I see here the sensitivity, uh, insensitivity, which is created by those who don't receive the word of truth. But you see, there's a sense in which we should be looking at everything in the world in exactly that way. I read once about a group of monks who would take just a single leaf off of a tree and spend an entire day meditating on that leaf and asking themselves, what has the Creator revealed about Himself in the structure of this leaf? And that's how we should be looking at all the world. For many years, I've had the habit of getting up early in the morning with my cup of coffee and my Bible to spend time reading the Word and praying, and I see the sun rise in the morning from the back of my house. And the sun, you know, is an illustration of God himself. He who dwells in unapproachable light. You can't look at the sun. The brightness of it is more than you can understand. But the light showers down upon the world and it brings life into everything. And as it breaks over the backyard there, the deer come out of the woods, the birds appear, life rises up every day. Do you see the image of the Creator and His creation in that? Do we look at the world that way?
Notice also in the passage that was read, if a person does choose to see and hear, the result is going to be healing. They would turn and they would be healed, is what the Lord says. Now, we think a lot about physical healing because we have a lot of physical ailments, and that's important to a degree. But the healing of the mind and the heart, spiritual healing, is far more important than physical healing. And isn't that what we all experienced who do know Jesus? When we first accepted his word, we first allowed him into our hearts, that we experienced that level of true healing within us. Healing is what he longs to bring to his children, to those who will accept him, who will listen to him, and who will look at the hidden truths in his creation. The mystery, what theologians call the mystery of election, is here. Only those chosen by God can see and hear, but we must choose to see and hear. Both are true. And seeing and hearing is a very great blessing if we will receive it for what it was intended to be. But today we tend to take it for granted. We all probably have ten Bibles in our house lying around. Many of them don't ever get opened or even looked at. We take it for granted. But Jesus says, don't you understand? The prophets and the godly people of old long to see what you see. They long to hear what you hear. Oh, what the people of Israel would have given to hear the words of Jesus revealed. Let us not ever take that for granted. And all of this and more, of course, is demonstrated in the parable of the sower and the seeds. With what type of heart do we receive the word of God? Is it a heart that the word bounces off of? Is it a shallow heart that hears and smiles and soon forgets? Or is it a self-centered heart that chooses other things when the times grow hard? Or is it a welcoming heart in which the word of God may take root and grow? In John 8.47, when Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders, he said, He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. But then in the 10th chapter, while speaking of his sheep, he says, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. That word recognize is interesting. Isn't that what it's like to the believer? We hear the voice of God and we recognize it. We say, I know that voice. I don't know how I know it, but I know it. So it's a process of recognition, not a process of discovery. And Jesus said in John 10:27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. They know who the shepherd is and they hear. Senator Bill Nelson, who represents the state of Florida, was a congressman for many years before he became a senator. And back in the 1980s, before the fall of the Soviet Union, he had the opportunity to take a ride on the space shuttle. And when he came back, he recalled that the early Soviet cosmonauts from that officially atheistic country, they went into space, and when they first came back, they said, they went into space and we did not see God there. Ha! Nelson said, I went into space, 
and I could see nothing else. He saw the majesty of the hand of the Creator in the universe, but the cosmonauts didn't see a thing. In C.S. Lewis's wonderful children's story, Prince Caspian, the four Pevensey children have returned to the land of Narnia, where they had been in the previous book, where Jesus is represented as a great lion named Aslan. And in this book, Prince Caspian, the youngest of the four children, Lucy, sees Aslan at a distance, and she's so excited, she runs to tell her uh, sister and her brothers, and they look, and they can't see him. And they start to make fun of her. Lucy, why are you making this up? Lucy, why are you telling us something that isn't there? And then one by one, they begin to actually see Aslan in a distance. And then they have to come to Lucy and say, Oh, Lucy, we're so sorry. We see him now. It's very much like that. I was reading through a collection of short stories a number of years ago, and I came across a short story by the British author H.G. Wells called The Country of the Blind, which I think illustrates what I'm trying to say fairly well. So the English majors are thinking, yay, it's story time. (laughs) Engineers and IT types, not so much, but stay with me. Let me give you the Reader's Digest version or Cliff Notes version or whatever they call it these days. The story is that there was a mountain climber in the Andes Mountains in Ecuador, and he suffered a fall. He was injured, but not so badly that uh, he couldn't get around. But he couldn't climb up the mountain. He could only go down, so that's what he did. And he found himself coming into a totally enclosed valley. story is that there was an earthquake years and years ago that closed off the way in and out of the valley. So it's a totally enclosed valley. And in this valley, he finds a tribe of people. And the one thing that is incredibly unique about this tribe of people is that every single one of them is blind. Not only are they all blind, but their parents were blind, their grandchildren, grandparents were blind. In fact, there is no concept of sight among the people at all. Their houses don't have windows. Why have windows if you can't see? All of their paths have a little curb so they can run their sticks along. Everything in this village is created for people who are blind. Well, when the mountain climber sees this, uh, he remembers an old proverb that he had heard, and that proverb was, in the valley of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so he thinks that he can go to these people and tell them all the wonderful things he sees, and won't they be pleased, won't they be happy to hear his explanation of all these things he can see that they can't see, and how grateful they will be to him. But that's not what happens. In fact, they think he's really weird, and he starts to really irritate them. What is this thing, sight, he says he has? We don't know of any such thing. We don't believe that such a thing exists. And he keeps getting put off because of this, and it creates a great tension. And then, naturally, he falls in love with a young woman in the tribe. Yeah, yeah, got to have romance in every story. And this being a tribal situation... The elders of the tribe have to get together and decide whether or not he should be allowed to marry into the tribe. So they get together, and this creates a real problem for them because having him come into the tribe means he's bringing this strange thing, this claiming that there is such a thing as sight, and it's going to upset the entire 
tribe. It's going to take away their peace, all of their order. Everything about who they are is going to be disrupted. So they finally decide, yes, he can marry the young woman, but first he must agree to have his eyes put out. Well, obviously, I mean, after all, they can't allow this in their tribe. Well, this creates quite a problem for the mountain climber, as you can imagine, and one day he just quietly climbs out of the valley. But I think you see the point. We live in the Valley of the Blind. I don't know about you, but when I was 15 years old and I accepted Jesus and had a very dramatic born-again experience, first thing I did was go tell my parents and my three older siblings about this wonderful new thing I had seen. Do you think they were grateful to hear it? They said, who are you to tell us what you think you have seen? Or words to that effect. I recently came back from a professional conference in Montreal, and when I was there, I went to an art gallery. You've all been in a major art gallery. You know how they're laid out. There are many different rooms, and in each room, there are paintings on the walls, and the paintings are set far enough aside from one another that you can look at one without being distracted by the others. And there is generally a bench, a simple little bench in the middle of the room, and you'll often see a person sitting on that bench staring at a painting. Well, what's he doing? He's trying to take in everything that the artist put into that painting. He's looking for the use of light. He's looking for the influence of the shadows. He's looking at the brush strokes. He's looking to see what's hidden in the corners and what interaction is going on between the different things on the canvas. He's looking to see the the expressions on the faces of any people who might be involved in there. And he's spending time concentrated and focused and trying to pull in the message of the great artist. Do you see where I'm going with this? That is how we should be looking at the creation of God. And hearing is the same thing, and I'll give you another story. Some 30 years ago or so, they came out with a movie called Children of a Lesser God. Some of you may have seen it. Not a movie I particularly recommend, but it did have one scene in it, which I think well illustrates what I'm trying to say here. And it's the story of a professor in a college for the deaf. And, yeah, he falls in love with a beautiful young deaf student. Yeah, yeah, got to have romance in every story. And the scene that I have in my mind is in the professor's apartment. And he's alone in the apartment, and he's had a a really hard day. He's just utterly exhausted, and all he wants to do is lie down on the sofa and listen to some really beautiful music. So he goes over to the record player. That's right, the record player. And he puts an album on, and then he lies down on the sofa just to listen to the beautiful music. Now, interestingly, the producers of this movie had to come up with the most gorgeous piece of music they could think of in order to make the point. And for those liberal arts majors among you, they chose the Adagio, the middle movement of Johann Sebastian Bach's concerto for two violins, his so-called double concerto, not to be confused with his concerto for solo violin. And so imagine he's lying on the sofa, not moving so that the person watching the film is going to hear the music and not be distracted by anything they see. 
And the music slowly begins, and it's a chamber orchestra, just a small chamber orchestra, just strings. No woodwinds, no brass, no percussion, just strings. And you have the violins, and you have the violas, and you have the cellos with their marvelous tone, the resonance and vibration which only those instruments can bring. And they're playing together a beautiful, slow progression of chords. And to the trained ear, the person listening to music, he can hear the individual line of the cello as it provides the bass. He can hear the lead of the first and second violins. He can hear how the viola fills in the gap in between the chords as they progress, the beauty of the way they fit together, and then slowly the first violin enters. And it begins to play, that is the first solo violin, begins to play a certain ascending simple melody. And just when it gets to the point where you think you know where it's going, oh, it turns and goes in a different direction. And just at that point, the second solo violin comes in and begins to repeat the theme of the first violin, but no, it goes in another direction entirely. And meanwhile, the strings underneath are providing this ascending crescendo. And just as he is enraptured in this, listening to it, the door opens and the young woman walks in. And there's this immediate tension created. He jumps off the sofa and runs to the record player to turn it off because he feels so guilty that he can hear this sublime music and she can't hear a note. And she runs to the record player to keep him from turning it off because she feels so guilty that she doesn't want him to not hear this music, whatever that is, just because of her. Well, it's not a perfect illustration. But again, I think you see a little bit of what I'm trying to say. Listening to the voice of God is very much like that professor listening to classical music. Do you have a trained ear? Do we know the different parts? Can we see how the great composer puts it all together so that what is happening in one instrument, one person, the tone, how it fits together, how the different um, harmonies are created, how the different solo parts are, do we listen that way? A few concluding observations. First of all, we who have been given the gift of spiritual sight and the gift of spiritual hearing, we must learn to use it well. We must develop it. We must practice it. We must set aside the time and we must concentrate. We cannot allow the fact that other people can't see or hear to keep us from seeing or hearing. And we must not allow the thought that I didn't really hear it if nobody else heard it. It may be for you alone. It's a great blessing. Let us glorify God for it. Let us enjoy it. Let us see and hear the majesty of the wonderful artist and composer in all that God has given us. And let us avoid distractions. We live in a world with so many different voices shouting at us, demanding our concentration all the time. We can't let the word of God become like elevator music, like something that's just in the background that you don't hear because it's just there and because there's so many other competing noises. No, you have to cut out the distractions. You have to concentrate. You have to look at every brush stroke. You have to listen to every note. 
like the people in the art gallery, like the professor listening to classical music. As Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has eyes to see, let him see. Note that we must obey first, and then we will see and hear. It's not the other way around. We don't wait until we hear and then obey. That's not the way God made it work. We obey first, and then we will hear. We need to be clear about the fact that we all live in the valley of the blind. Don't do what I did. Don't shake your fist at a blind man and ask why he can't see. Instead, we need to be knowing and compassionate. We need to remember that the eyes of the blind must be opened. Now, you'll remember that when Jesus walked among us on this earth, this was one of the most common miracles that he worked. He did open the eyes of the blind. And notice he did it in a different way every time. You don't know how God will open the eyes of the blind. You don't know when. You don't know if. But you know that only he can do so. It's love which opens the eyes of the blind. Not a really good argument. The world is always arguing. But arguments don't produce very much. We have an obligation as vehicles of the word of God to share it any way we can not because we're trying to argue something, but because we're faithfully bringing the word of God so that the Spirit can work through it if that is what his will may be. Our obligation is to be faithful in our witness and in our conveying the word. Let's remember that there is a great chasm fixed between those who belong to God and those who do not, but we don't know who is who. Many a person has found salvation lying on their deathbed, Again, we recognize the chasm. We understand its importance. But our job is to be faithful, to love and to convey the word of God, not to make judgments about who is going to be saved or who isn't. And lastly, let us never forget that we believers also are blind and deaf about many things. We need to help each other to see and to hear. And we need to make a great effort to do so. Children's story, The Little Prince, has one great line in it. And everything in the story just comes to this one line, and it is this. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take this important word from your scripture and that you would reveal to each one of us here today what you want us to see and hear from this passage. Lord, I pray that my humble words would be used by you to convey to each of us whatever the message you might want that person to hear would be. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, help us to avoid distraction, cause us to see you and to glorify you as we see your hand in the beauty of your creation. Help us to listen and to hear what you say in your word 
and to always be looking to understand the great beauty of how the music comes together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.